this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Greetings, I'm Trisha Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books in Architecture with a special mini-series in Landscape Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And today I have a very special guest for you. It is Diane Jones-Allen, and the book is Lost in the Transit Desert, Race, Transit Access, and the Suburban Form published by Routledge in 2018. Hi, Diane. Welcome to the show. Hi. How are you today? Can you tell the audience about yourself and your educational background? Sure. So um, currently, I am director of the master's program in landscape architecture at the University of Texas in Arlington. I um, also am principal landscape architect with Design Jones LLC, which is located in New Orleans, Louisiana. I have a bachelor's of fine arts in painting, a master's of landscape architecture, which I received from the University of California, Berkeley. And I have a doctorate in transportation engineering. Well, it's a doctorate in civil with a focus on transportation engineering from Morgan State University in Baltimore. And what was your motivation for writing this book? So it kind of puts together all my interests. Um, You know, I consider myself, even though I have a doctorate in engineering, I'm a landscape architect. Uh, And so I, as a landscape architect, was um, looking at the urban environment and looking at how, you know, transportation is one of the organizing factors of how people live. It organizes settlement and how in some place, some cases, it kind of disrupted communities or um, was kind of a vehicle out. Um, And what actually started me um, writing this book was I was uh, working on some research with another faculty member. um, And uh, this person was looking at um, redevelopment project in Baltimore. And then um, she was looking at where people moved to, where they were vouchered out. They were given, um, the renters were given um, vouchers to move out of the redevelopment area because they were tearing down the home, the, um, the homes. And so she was kind of looking at, um, this was, she was a sociologist. So she was looking at the, the social um, disconnect that would happen once people moved away from their neighborhoods with their friends and family and places where they worked. And she wanted me to look at, you know, the new locations, like what, you know, the difference in the landscape and the urban environment between where they were and where they moved out to the outer herbs. And one thing I noticed the most was, you know, seeing more people waiting on corners for longer times. And I began to realize that one of the, biggest difference in um, the suburban form there from where they were, which was a more denser part 
of the um, you know the downtown to where they moved, which was outer urban, was that the outer urban environment lacked transportation. It was more suburban in form. And so that um, led me to start looking into transit deserts and um, doing research on it and seeing how those areas kind of impacted the you know, environmental, economic, and social cultural life for the people that lived in them. What is a transit desert? What are its origins, particularly in New Orleans? Uh, that was the research you did? I actually first heard the term when I was thinking about it um, from a, a professor that was doing research in Canada. But um, so the transit deserts are really places that have little transit access, but high demand. And so that depends a lot on demographics, you know, those people that need transit. And then access depends a lot on form, um, land use, density of a place, um, how much residential to commercial, how mixed use it is, how walkable it is. So those those characteristics actually enhance the ability um, to, to have um, mass transit. And so transit deserts are places that usually lack all those characteristics, but for um, various reasons, populations who need transit happen to be located in them. And uh, I looked at uh, three different cities that um, kind of, had a lot of the characteristics that led to transit deserts. I looked at Chicago, New Orleans, and Baltimore. What is your background for transit that you spoke about in the book? And what is your transportation experience? Sure. So um, I got a, a doctorate in transportation engineering. So I was, you know, and those, those courses are basically looking at transit allocation, uh, I remember painfully having to take um, a lot of courses on, you know, um, transportation economics and transportation algorithms one and two, which I suffered through greatly, but they were very helpful learning those algorithms, how, you know, how transit is allocated. Um, And I took highway design courses, but uh, I, you know, becoming interested in transit deserts actually, uh, my thesis ended up being on circulators, which are kind of, you know, which now, you know, the idea and, you know, I, I received my thesis a few years back. So um, I always feel like I was ahead of time because um, my thesis was about using circulators to, in transit desert neighborhoods that could gather people and take them to the major arterials where you know, major transportation or more frequent transportation would run. And now, you know, there's something called VIA, um, which we have here in in Arlington, um, Texas, in the DFW area, which is a kind of paid online shuttle that um, you come to a certain stop and you, you know, get on your, uh, your cell phone and let them know you're there and they pick you up and it's a fixed route. And that's kind of what I was... <laughs> proposing in my thesis way back was that, um, you know, there would be these, uh, you'd use either a cell phone or there'd be a kiosk. And then, um, you know, you'd go and the, there'd be a fixed route, but 
you know, when you press the button, then the driver, you know, within the vehicle, the vehicle will be routed based on where people were located, which would make it faster and it'd take you to um, arterials. So um, that's, you know, that's kind of, you know, the background I had that kind of led me because my thesis was more technical. Yes, it was more, you know, looking at because I was getting a engineering. It was more looking at how did you how would you route those vehicles? You know, um, how would you you know, I was using algorithms to come up with formulas for where the stops would be located and how they would connect. But the thing my thesis lacked, which I really was more interested in, was um, kind of the social cultural impact. What led people to be in those transit deserts and what kind of policy could, you know, make things like circulators and providing mass transit happen? So that's kind of how I got from the background I had um, and being, you know, having a degree in landscape architecture. I really was interested in people and where they live and how they live in the kind of physical environment. So I'm putting all those things together kind of led me to this book. Let's talk about some of your case studies. You said you have a design firm in New Orleans, and we all know what happened with Katrina. Um, and I actually was there recently with the National ASLA Conference a couple years ago. Um, and it's looking so much better. Uh, can you tell us more about the demographics and how it affected the people who lived there? So um, New Orleans changed greatly <laughs> um, post-Katrina. Um in some good ways, you know, things that should have happened, increasing development, but in some, I think, you know, devastating ways to certain communities. Um, there was a great push, um, push of people from in the, you know, central, more highly serviced area of New Orleans out to places like New Orleans East, which has less transit and less service opportunities. And then also people totally pushed totally out of the city because not being able to come back. So um, people that were pushed, you know, to the outer rings, of course, suffered from, you know, the lack of transit. Um, One of the case studies that I did in New Orleans was, you know, a woman who had worked at Charity Hospital in New Orleans and the hospital was closed. It's being redeveloped now into mixed use. And so she ended up moving um, out to New Orleans East. and But then she ended up getting a job back downtown at the casino, at the Harris Casino. And she was getting up like four o'clock, you know, in the morning to get, you know, to her job, to make sure she could get there at seven. And sometimes she would end up even getting there late because at the time, post-Katrina, they had stopped bus service. And when they started it back up, there were only two lines in New Orleans East. And she had to transfer. And sometimes she would take the streetcar because when she got into the city, because once you get in the city, there's more, you know, there's buses and streetcars. When you're out in the outer urban areas, there's only the bus and for her, there was only two lines. So she was getting up, you know, three hours ahead to get downtown, which if you were driving by car, you probably could get there in 20 or 25 minutes. And yet she was getting up at three o'clock and it was dark. I mean, there were safety issues for her. You know, she was telling, you know, in the book, it talks about this, you know, incident where someone that she used to stand with and this person was killed, you know, um, cause the bus stop is dark. 
And, um, and so she, you know, she was really struggling with this and then she was getting points for being late. You know, she talks about how at the casino, if you're late, you know, you get docked. But what happened, which is really interesting, and it actually turns out to be kind of a solution, is the the casino realized that it really that their employees weren't trying to be late. And it wasn't just her. It was many of them who lived, you know, who happened to be got pushed out to the outer areas after Katrina, who worked at the casino. They realized that, you know, these people weren't trying to be late. They wanted to come to work. Of course, they needed to come to work. You know, they were good employees. And so the Casino got the regional transit authority to come to a meeting. And she was really proud because the casino, she was one of the people that got to stand up and talk about the lack of access. There weren't enough lines. You know, they weren't coming frequent enough. The issue she was having to get into work. And then the casino agreed with, you know, the convince the regional transit authority to add additional lines. And the casino would ha- would pay half of the transit passes for their employees. And so the the RTA agreed to do that because the casino said, I'm gonna guarantee you X amount of passes. And so that's kind of a way you had kind of private and public coming together to actually solve this problem. And those are the kind of things that are gonna to have to happen, you know, if we're gonna have equitable transportation. How do demographics play in desert transit? How does it affect the opportunities that people have, such as uh, their access to medical care, uh, doctors, and other services? Yes, you know, so, you know, one of the things, you know, I looked at, so I looked at a lot of census data, um, and luckily at the time, I mean, right now, (laughs) I was just trying to work on some new research, and it's difficult because we're the census hasn't happened yet. It's about to happen. And 10 years is kind of old for research. But when I was doing this, I was like, right at a good point when the census was still fairly new. Um, the 10 years, um, 2010. And so I looked at a lot of census data and looking at, you know, car ownership, like, you know, and how many people were in, you know, a household and how far people had to travel to work. So a lot of this, you know, you can get through census data. And so I began to see patterns, right, of people who are lower income. I mean, that was kind of the basic, um, you know, uh, kind of overriding thing that happened that people were lower income. For one, for many reasons, you know, people who are lower income were kind of gentrified out, right? Or they move out to urban areas, suburban areas or outer ring areas because they tend to be less expensive. Housing is less expensive than in the city. And then you find garden apartments and the kind of things that people can afford. So you end up, one of the demographics is really, you know, um, lower income. And then when you dive into lower income, those tend to be more minorities, you know, and these urban areas tend to be the lower income. And then often, uh, the, these populations tend to be hidden. Like I said, they're, they're like in garden apartments or they're, if they're in single family homes, it might be two or three, you know, or one or two families living together. So, and then you find out through the demographic demographics, um, the demographic data that they only have one vehicle, you know, between six people or something. So um, they end up, you know, Suffering in that, you know, getting to work late or having to come up with extreme measures of paying strangers to get 
in their cars to get a, to get to work. Or, you know, there've been cases of people having to walk miles and it's really important because you have to get to work, you know, you have to get to work so that you can afford to send your kids to school. So they have food to eat and clothes and they can get to school. And lots of times children suffer. I mean, in Chicago, I did research where showing how kids were having to ride who lived in Alt Gardens, which was way past the L, way in South Chicago, and kids getting up at two or three in the morning to get to school on time because there was one bus and they had to ride this bus before they could get to an L train to get on to get to school. So, um, yes, it, it, it definitely impacts quality of life. You know, parents being able to get to work or being able to get to the doctor or get their kids to the doctor or get their kids to school. I mean, trans mobility, mobility makes a difference. It makes a difference in the kind of job you can get, whether or not you can get a county job. And that was interesting, too, because lots of times it was easier for people who didn't have a car to get a job in the city than to get one in the county like kind of outer area where they were because, you know, most of the county areas didn't have transportation. So they couldn't get there because they didn't have a car. So they could they could get into the city, even though it might take them three or four vehicles and three or four, you know, um, um, transit, you know, uh, transfers to get there or they have to get up at four in the morning at least they could kind of get into the city. It was even worse trying to get out further to suburban jobs. So it really limited where you could work, where your kid could go to school, all kinds of things. So, yeah, you know, because our whole mobility in this country is centered on only one form of transportation. Yes, yes. And, you know, there's all kinds of concerns, really. I mean, you think with... Uh, you know, the on the, you know, the, we're about to come into an area where an era where they may, there may be more autonomous vehicles and electric vehicles, but, you know, people also worry about the equity of that. You know, that's the thing too. Like I, I would talk to people and they would say, oh, but you know, you could take Uber. There's more, there's a lot of different things that are available besides buses, but I'm like Uber you know, it costs money, you know, believe it or not, there are people who don't have a cell phone or don't have a credit card. So, you know, unless these companies kind of find ways to, um, uh, you know, deal with people who don't have, you know, that those, you know, those things that it's, that are needed to access something like Uber or Lyft or, you know, rideshare, then they, they too get left out. Um, I talk about this in the book, but there's other cases about, of Uber working with, um, Uber and Lyft working with cities and, you know, providing some free, uh, Lyft or, you know, a ride share to transit stops, you know, so they can, you know, so cities pay and they'll pick up people. You can get an Uber free once you get off the transit stop you know, to your last, you know, the last mile, as they call it. Um, so things like that need to happen because all this new, te- all this new technology isn't equitable because it takes certain things that certain populations don't have. 
Yeah, and they always talk about autonomous cars, but, you know, it's still a car, and that doesn't solve the geometry problem we have here. There's still not enough space on the road for everybody. Yeah, and the thing that, you know, everybody knows and research has proven that the more you add lanes, the more congestion <laughs> you make. Um, I mean, the best cities are are multimodal, you know, they um, and they tend to be more equitable, right? The cities where there are freeways for people who want to drive, but those freeways tend to be less crowded because there are rail lines, you know, and there are subway lines and there is buses and there are, you know, things like Uber and Lyft and bike lanes. And, you know, so the more the more choice you have, then the more equity you can have because there's something that can serve a variety. But places that, um, you know, depend on a single, which is happens a lot in Texas, <laughs> where I am right now, depend on, you know, car, depend on the freeway. It's probably, you know, the only way to get around. Um, you know, not all cities here. There are cities like Dallas has, um, has rail um, and buses, and so does Fort Worth. But, um, but, you know, the more multimodal a city is, you know, the more equitable it is. But the more it depends solely on cars, then the less equitable. Well, in the next chapter of your book, it's about forecasting the desert. How do we find solutions for our transportation so that everybody has a fair standard of living? So, you know, transportation is allocated through um, forecasting. And what, what's usually done is demand forecasting looking at the transit generators, looking at where people are going. Um, and, you know, they use these numbers. Actually, you know, states use this to because most public transportation, especially bus systems, are subsidized just because the, the fares that people pay aren't quite enough. And because states realize that if we subsidize transit, you know, we actually increase, you know, the the income that comes back into the state, right? Because you have more people that can go to work. And so you grow business and, you know, you grow residential and mixed use development. If you have, you know, so if we subsidize transit, we're going to get this back in state taxes and because we have a thriving economy. So forward looking states subsidize transit because they realize that, you know, the more we have people working and contributing, the more we get back. Um, so they use those demand forecasting methods. And so what I um, talk about in my book is something, you know, I call catalytic, catalytic forecasting, saying, OK, instead of looking at based on current situations, you know, of generators and where people are going, instead of looking at um, where we are now and, you know, how much transit we need, let's make transit a catalyst. And so let's say. We're gonna say that every single lot in an area, in a neighborhood, has a transit rider. Now we might not know that, but we're gonna say there's that demand on every lot. And that they, we use those numbers to allocate transit. And then even though that, you know, the, those numbers, you know, I'm, I'm just making this assumption in catalytic forecasting that everywhere I have a residential lot, I got a transit rider. And then I'm going to use those numbers to, to generate lines. But then those lines actually become a catalyst. Because when I was doing my research, there were people who told me, you know, that they would take transit, that they would leave their cars home and take transit. 
if they didn't have to wait. People don't like waiting, especially on buses, you know, and it's interesting, <laughs> you know, they don't mind waiting in, in subways, you know, because when you go to New York or you go to San Francisco and you're in the bar, or you're in the, you'll find all kinds of diverse economics, you know, ranges of people, people of various economic groups, rich, the poor and the in-between, all right, all right, you know, the BART or the subway or, but buses, people don't like being exposed. Like someone was telling me they don't like standing on the corner, waiting for a bus, watching people drive by them. You know, when you're in a BART station, you're completely, there are no cars going by you. You know, you're completely covered and closed and all the people are just like you. But when you're on a bus stop, you're exposed to people riding by you. And the biggest thing is they don't like the wait time. So with catalytic forecasting, you forecast based on, I guess, these kind of exaggerated numbers, because I'm saying whether or not there's a, there's a person, there's demand at every residence. And then what you use that to do is increase the number of vehicles, right? Increase the transit, which will increase the frequency, which will lower the wait time which will, in essence, increase the ridership. <laughs> You'll actually probably reach your numbers, right? Because if the buses were more frequent and people didn't have to wait as long, they would take, they would take the, the, the transit. I mean, I had people say that it's not even, they'd even ride longer, right? They'd even be on the bus longer, right? Because when you're on the bus, you can read, you could, you know. If, if that decreased the amount of time they had to wait on the bus stop. So that's what catalytic forecasting does. It's a way to make transportation the catalyst for increasing the numbers and increasing the frequency and lowering the wait time. Well, I guess that's where landscape architecture comes in because we still have weather at bus stops. Maybe we should be designing better ones because we can have frequency, but we're still going to have weather. Yes, yes. That's the other thing too. Yeah, standing outside, you know, you're right. Yes. And, you know, the thing is that transportation tends to, um, places that are transit friendly tend to be more walkable, right? Because of just what you said. Because if you have mass transit, then you need kind of wider sidewalks so people can get to the bus stop, right? And you need nice shelters and you probably have seating, you know, you probably have nicer signage and you might even have trees along the street, you know, because so transportation and walkability um, kind of go hand in hand. So then everybody kind of benefits. Even those people who aren't taking transit benefit from the wider sidewalks and the signage and the trees and the things that come along with transit-friendly cities. I live in the Keys, and, and I drive down the Keys all the time to Isla Morada and Key West. And if I'm walking past a business uh, in a walkable areas, you know, I'm more likely to go in. But if I'm driving, then I'm definitely not walking into your business. Yes. Yeah, I mean, actually, you know, those... And, you know, that's like kind of the old, uh, the things that Jane Jacobs was saying years ago, <laughs> you know, it still holds true. Like if people are walking on the street, so if you have a transit friendly place where it's walkable, then, you know, you're right. That kind of enhances activity, which enhances business, you know, all those things go together and make cities more livable, viable. I guess it's kind of like a chicken and egg, but getting it all to work together. Okay. So, you know, one thing, um, so there's um, a couple of different levels. So like on the um, government 
um, and, you know, transit authority kind of level, you know, using things like um, catalytic forecasting to, you know, uh, to allocate demand, um, having policies, you know, um, certain policies like, for instance, when you're doing um, uh, transit oriented development, so working with developers, so cities and municipalities, states can work with developers who are doing transit oriented development to make sure that there's some affordable housing, because what happens is usually transit oriented development tends to be more market rate and high end. But, you know, it's funny because those people that move into those developments probably have SUVs parked in the garage. So it would be nice if you put some affordable housing in those developments that are, you know, are, are, are oriented around transit. And that, that's some of the policy things that can do. And, you know, find the ways to work with um, agencies and banks and, you know, to kind of fund uh, people, you know, giving subsidies or ways that people can, you know, access Uber and other kind of um, new forms of transportation, um, those kind of things, you know. Um, and then in terms of how people survive um, in Baltimore, and I'm sure it happens everywhere it, it, there, they have a name for it. It's called hacking. And it's basically where people become kind of non, um, non-commissioned or <laughs> non-certified taxi drivers, like they, they drive their cars around and they pick up people. Um, and it happens a lot there. Um, and they even have like a signal that you use and a person. Now, it, you know, you would think that's kind of dangerous because you're getting in a stranger's car, you're letting a stranger get in your car, but people do it there all the time. And um, it was considered illegal, illegal, but it goes on. But I mean, now there tends to be more of a crackdown on it because... Uh, people feel it's competing with Uber. But, you know, things like uh, um, in, in a lot of, uh, and I talk about this in the book, in a lot of countries in the Caribbean and Africa, Asia, they use a lot of wet paratransit, which is something like the hacking where um, private uh, people or private companies, you know, have um, service that, pick up public riders and they have, you know, routes and people use it, but the transit is not provided by the government. It's just provided by entrepreneurs. So um, that's happening in the States too, in these places, which I'm undercover and you're, and it isn't the safest thing. I mean, people shouldn't have to do that, but those are some of the things that they do. But, you know, if we could provide more, you know, diversity in the kind of transportation we provide people and to increase it in those areas where it's needed. And that's going to take, you know, policy changes and private and public sector and citizen advocates kind of working together because, um, you know, the more and more people will get left, left out as we move toward you know, autonomous vehicles and shared vans and ride sharing, you know, there, there are people that are going to get left out of that too, because of economics. And so, you know, I, I feel like transportation is kind of a civil right. I feel like that because you kind of need, you have to get where you have to get. And as, you know, societies, we need to 
do what we can to give everybody a fair share. So I think that, um, you know, even though transportation is becoming more and more private, um, you know, provided privately, and there are some cities that are looking at that, they you know, they're not going to do any subsidized buses or they're, they're looking to the private sector. But even then, if you're looking to the private sector to provide transportation for your public, then, you know, there has to be. Um, there has to be some participation and buy-in in that publicly and some kind of partnership to really make those things work. So what solutions did you find and what were the creative solutions that people came up with to move around? Yeah, Maryland was uh, where I actually first started because that's the one where um, a development came in the downtown and it was interesting because, you know, I did GIS mapping and there was like a bus stop, um, you know, I mean, people could walk out of there almost on every corner. So the mapping showed and it was a grid pattern, which is kind of the best for providing, you know, a simple grid providing transportation because the streets go through, you know, when you have major um, arterials with local streets that go right through to them. So in this community, um, there were bus stops even on the local streets, right? And, um, you know, or on the larger local streets that ran into the arterial. So people could walk out of their house and, you know, walk less than a quarter mile, like sometimes just a half a block and be at a bus stop. And when the development came and the neighborhood was, um, you know, all those homes were, torn down and people, you know, and a lot of the people were renters, so they were just given vouchers. Um, and so there were like about 400 families who were like moved out and they ended up being moved to a place when I mapped it, the neighborhoods they, they were moved to were totally different in terms of physical form. They were more suburban in form. So the streets didn't run through. There were a lot of cul-de-sacs and curves, right? which meant that there wasn't transit because you usually don't have buses going on curves and in cul-de-sacs because that suburban form was made just for that. It was made to keep out through traffic, right? And so they ended up having to walk a mile, sometimes more, to get to the nearest bus. So that was one of the biggest things, you know, seeing how just moving from one physical kind of form from, you know, kind of a dense urban gridded pattern to a more, you know, um, suburban, curvy, you know, form that's designed to not have through traffic, how that really changed one's ability to get to, to, to public transportation. That was, that was one of the interesting things and, and very kind of vivid, vivid, you know, it came out in the study. Um, and, and I talk about that in, um, in the case study in the book. What are some of your other case studies in the book? What did you learn from Marilyn? Yeah, you know, I, um, I hope they do. <laughs> um, because, you know, one thing, so there are, you know, and I, and I use a lot of references myself and having, you know, studied um, transportation, you know, at the, at the doctorate level, um, so I looked at a lot of books on demand and, you know, kind of the technical aspect. 
But what I hope this book is good for, for kind of bringing some of that, you know, social, um, um, kind of social equity and, uh, you know, kind of how do we make places more resilient and, and um, inclusionary. Uh, I, I try to bring that um, into this. And I think, you know, that's important. And actually, as a professor, you know, because I'm around young people, um, you know, and I, I'm teaching at the master's level, young people who those are the kind of things they're interested in, you know. They're interested in, you know, equity and inclusion and, you know, how how can have a more fair and dynamic society. And so I hope hopefully um, people who are, you know, teaching their are doing courses on transportation or even courses on land use or on social equity that, you know, that this book, I think, could be could be brought into any of those discussions. Why and how did all these transit deserts happen? Oh, good question. <laughs> so, because I spent, you know, um, the early part of the book talking, called, you know, in the chapter called Theorizing the Transit Desert. So what is the theory? How, how did they happen? Um, so one of the big things was uh, um, revitalization and gentrification. Um, uh, because, you know, I am not anti-revitalization. I think it's, um, you know, good. Cities always need revitalizing new um, amenities and facilities and employment, those things that come with revitalization, new, you know, better housing. Um, But the biggest issue with revitalization to me when it becomes gentrification, I guess, is when there's displacement. And so there was large displacement when a lot of this revitalization came about. And I talk about that in the case of Baltimore and in Chicago. A lot of when um, public housing was torn down. And um, so that so, you know, there's just revitalization. And then the second thing that impacted this push is when public housing was torn down and these um, mixed use. At one time it was called Hope Six and now it's called Livable Communities. Those those developments are um, like mixed income, but the rate of subsidized and um, lower income housing greatly decreases, right? So you might've had a public housing unit that was, you know, maybe 50% subsidized and then, you know, the other 50 low income. Now you've got to place this new development, which you're going to have to have market rate, you know, workforce and subsidize. So the rate of subsidize went down. And so people were vouchered. They were given vouchers and that pushed people out because a lot of those vouchers were for lower, you know, um, lower rent um, garden apartments or places, you know, that were further away from the more high end area, especially as these places are you know, you're tearing down the public housing, you're revitalizing. So the property values are going up. So people are vouchered out, vouchered out to older, um, less valuable um, or lower priced um, outer ring or suburban areas. So that was one of the things, you know, dismantling of public housing, the increase of displacement caused to market caused by market forces, 
And then the highway <laughs> was a big one too itself because, um, you know, this, this trend, you know, I mean, I started looking at this late because when I started doing my research and looking back and I, I, I have, I talk about this in the book, you know, in, in the sixties and seventies and urban renewal, when highways were dropped, people were displaced. And then it also allowed people to get on it and move out. Right. So, um, those are some of the factors that caused this to happen. You know, these economic drivers that shifted populations, you know, as the 80s and 90s became around, especially in the 80s with more, you know, waterfront, you know, harbor development and, you know, cities discovering their downtowns and revitalizing them. So people that were and people that had in the 60s and 70s, 50s, 60s and 70s, when having a suburban home was the American dream. People that had went out there and discovered it wasn't such a dream decided they wanted to move back into the city. And people that had been in these city communities before they were vitalized got pushed out, right? So it's kind of the shifting of populations. And that and that's one of the things that, that caused this and all those factors that went along with those that shifting. How do you hope other professors will be using this book in their classrooms? Yes. Yep. I hope so. <laughs> and thank you so much for being here today. I know we've taken up a lot of your time. Can you tell the audience what you're working on now? What cool stuff do you have on your plate? Sure. So um, I'm working on, in terms of research, I, um, you know, I was uh, interested in, um, you know, climate change, of course, you know, a lot of us are, especially now, and it's kind of on everyone's mind. And um, being, you know, in New Orleans, I was, came back to New Orleans, you know, after, because Katrina came, you know, I moved to Baltimore, I came back to New Orleans, um, and working on some recovery efforts in the Lower Ninth Ward, and then really trying to understand, like, what happened with the storm, you know, why there was such great devastation. And the thing was because of the loss of wetlands, right? Because the storm, Katrina was out in the Gulf and the, the, it moved, you know, it really didn't devastate the city. It did a little wind and rain and it moved out. But what happened is the surge came up through the Mississippi Gulf outlet, um, which is now closed. Thank goodness. Some activists had it closed after Katrina. The surge came up and because of the depletion of wetlands from saltwater intrusion and not really understanding and caring enough about our coastal environment, you know, the water was able to come into the Bienvenue wetland, try kind of go around the triangle and burst through the flood walls. And so, um, you know, I became really interested in, you know, then how do we, what do we do about that? How do we protect our wetlands? So the book I'm, working at working on now um is about uh maroons which were escaped slaves who um a lot of them people heard about those populations in the caribbean particularly haiti and jamaica but we actually had them in the louisiana um swamps and how they lived in these um swamps and the things they did to kind of preserve the environment because preserving the environment kind of kept them safe and then what we can learn about preservation of the swamps from this historic, this, um, you know, this history 
and the tenants and things we can learn to actually restore our wetlands today. So that's what I'm working on. Well, you'll have to send me your next book. I will. (laughs) And thank you so much for um, talking with me. I I enjoyed it. I appreciate it. And for our audience, uh, this book is Lost in Transit Desert, Race, Transit Access, and Suburban Forms by Diane Jones-Allen, published by Routledge in 2018. And again, this is Tricia from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books in Architecture, with a special mini-series in Landscape Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. Thank you so much.